Welcome to Podagogies, a teaching and learning podcast. I'm Chelsea Jones. And I'm Curtis Maloli. We're recording from our homes in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, on Treaty 13 territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and also the Dish with One Spoon territory. And today we're talking about ungrading, what it is, how to get started, what it might mean for students in higher education. So what is ungrading? According to past Podagogy's guest and leading proponent of ungrading, Dr. Jesse Stommel, ungrading is distinct from not grading. So it's not about not marking, it's much more than that. Dr. Abru Ustendag has been practicing ungrading in her classes for the past year or so, after attending the Digital Pedagogy Lab in 2019. Abru is an associate professor of geography and tourism studies at Brock University, and she joins us today to discuss the benefits of disrupting traditional grading practices in higher education. Welcome, Abru. Lovely being with you this afternoon. We, we are really excited to have you. Let's just start right at the beginning. So please help us to understand what does ungrading mean? You know, what does it look like for you? Ungrading will mean different things to different people. I think that's the beauty of ungrading that you cannot box ungrading because it will look, feel, and practice differently to different faculty and different students. As Chelsea said, in 2019, I attended uh, Digital Pedagogies Lab and one of the seminars that they have offered was on ungrading. And I was really excited. And I kept bugging Jesse. I'm just like, tell me how, tell me how, like, give me the sheet, <laughs> show me, show me. And Jesse kept pushing back and saying, no, like you have to find your own way uh, because it's about the process. It's about the relationship building. It's about understanding things unfold as you go through it. So I really appreciated that. Uh, and if I may, like how I kind of like almost seduced by the idea is the fact that maybe over the last five or six years, every time I was going to the class, I was teaching. I'm someone who really enjoys value uh, teaching and my interactions with students. And on my way to my office, I had this kind of a, like the gut feeling and I'm like, oh, I'm not doing things right. I'm not feeling the connections with students. So I think I started really questioning, like, what kind of a tools do I have uh, to change uh, the classroom environment and how we practice teaching? Yeah. You know, as you say that, you know, when you think about what motivated you to do this and you're having this gut feeling, what was it about the relationship with your students, the kind of conventional relationship that felt problematic for you? I think there are some structural factors that I think whoever is listening to these uh, podcasts know very much that students are changing. Um, I think what, again, this is kind of a based, my, based on my own experiences that I, we have been teaching students the way that we have been taught like 30 years ago. Um, and those students who were in the classroom 30 years ago are definitely not the students that we have in our classrooms. Um, they definitely have more challenges in terms of economy. Um, when I was an undergrad student, which is a privilege, I didn't have to work two jobs. Um, most of our students have to juggle at least two jobs. They have significant care work. It's sometimes their kids, it's sometimes their parents, sometimes it is their grandparents, and it's sometimes their communities, right? I always remind myself that we have the tendency, the neoliberal education asks us to think about our students as individuals, but they belong to communities. 
they have more responsibilities and accountabilities that I think we can think or imagine. So I think that's one thing is just like students are burdened with so many different things that we haven't to a certain extent. And I'm worried how things are gonna look quite different after we go, uh, I don't wanna use the term normal when we go back to the class. Uh, so that's one thing that I have been really worried because, you know, you go to the class and you're just like, oh, I can give students 100 pages to read every week. And I'm like, do they even have time to sleep? Forget about 100 pages to read. And I was graduate program director in MA in geography. And one of the things that stuck with me is this mental health crisis. I think we talk about it, but in most cases, we don't even think about how it percolates to their everyday life, the anxiety, the stress, right? So when you go to and talk to your students, they're just like, I'm stressed about this class. I'm stressed about my grading. I'm stressed about my assignments. So I think just like my thing is like, okay, they have incredible social, economic, cultural, and mental health pressures. And this is definitely an obstacle for their learning. And at that moment, it's not even the outcomes, right? We are expected to, of course, we are ethically and academically responsible for those outcomes, but I also want them to really enjoy the process, right? I didn't want my students to come to the class with an additional stress. I'm like, oh my God, I have to get this grade. I have to do this assignment. And it's just like this really performance anxiety because whoever I was talking to, they had this really incredible heavy burden and anxiety they have been carrying. So in terms of like what kind of an assignments that I have been designing, what kind of a reading. So like during the pandemic, in addition to academic articles, I put podcasts for them to listen. I put comics in because I'm just like, if I can diversify their learning experience, if I can make it a little bit unconventional, maybe I can take that heaviness off their shoulders. And I think ungrading has been for me so important to apply because I have seen how the fact that they heard I was like what do you mean that I have to grade my own assignment uh, to have that kind of a, like pressure off their shoulders uh, especially this year during the pandemic made a huge difference. It's really interesting to hear you talk about what motivated you to think about ungrading and also the pressures that students have to carry in higher education. And it's interesting to me because I've been thinking about ungrading a lot lately. I'm planning a critical disability studies course. And as I'm planning this course, some of the things we'll learn about are academic ableism, we'll learn about the problems of inclusion and universal design and all of those sorts of things. And yeah, I'm, I'm realizing I cannot give students a course that is structured in the traditional way that follows traditional ideas of assessment without reproducing those pressures that you're describing or that academic ableism that I hear you describing. And so I'm really intrigued to know more about your strategies, but also about how to introduce ungrading to students. Because one thing I worry about is that you know, you've got these third, fourth year students who have maybe finally figured out university, right? They have figured out how to play the game. They figured out how to be successful. And then they have this professor who comes in and turns the table on them and they have to figure out a whole new game. So how do you introduce ungrading to students in a gentle way or in, in a way that they can sort of absorb and take on without increasing that pressure? That's an excellent question, Chelsea. Thank you. Um, 
I think I really spend time to cultivate belonging in the class. I think to be gentle, to be kind, to be caring are fundamental ways that the way that I try to understand myself and my relationship with my students, especially this year when I said to them, hey, you're going to grade yourself. There is always just like, I have never done this. And some students were just like, oh, I don't want to do this because I don't know how to do it. You might just say that, oh, students are excited because, you know, they can just think that, oh, I'm going to grade myself. This is great. Um, But there is incredible amount of resistance because they have never done this before. They have written me and saying that I have never heard this. Like I'm not used to it. Uh, One thing that's great about teaching in geography is that I get lots of education students because geography is a teachable. At the end of both fall and winter term, after practicing on grading, I got these incredible emails from education students saying how not only their understanding with the grading system changed, but how they look forward to applying this to K-12 when they go back to the classroom as a teacher. So I think it was important for them to hear the, the fact that we trust them. Maybe in terms of answering your question, I would say that's my starting point. To tell students is just like, because there are so many venues in life that they're told that you're not enough. You're being tested. You have to perform in a particular way. And they come in and I tell them, I trust you. You are the expert in this. You know how much time and effort you have put to this assignment. You know it. And one of the things uh, that... I did uh, when I introduced on grading is that I stood, I put students into three group uh, pots. So they had a good sense of their contributions to the class and to discussions because they were in these small pots. And every month these pots were changing. So at the end of the term, they actually seen and read and interact with 12 other um, students in their class. So I think it was a very good way for them to understand, hey, this is where I stand. That's also I understand how others are actually practicing and learning with me at the same time. Let me just ask you a quick question about that. So I, I really like this idea that you're, you're getting your students to do some of that assessment of themselves. And it sounds like you're doing that in ways where they're reflecting on group work or participation, those kinds of things. You know, I I think it makes sense when you say that they're sort of the expert on like what their contribution is. But on the other side, where you're the content expert and where you're asking them to do work that you would evaluate in some way, I'm curious to know, like, does ungrading also apply to these kinds of like, let's say an essay assignment or something like that? Does it, is it the same strategy? Exactly. So I think what is important for me is just like, I still give lots of feedback. So I think sometimes when we throw the word ungrading, faculty understands the fact that you don't read the assignments or you don't give any feedback. I think what ungrading is, is just like, it changes, I think, both the faculty and students' relationship with the feedback, which is very important because most of the time you hear your colleagues talking about, oh, students never read the feedback. They take the assignment. The first thing that they do is just like, they look at the last page, they look at their grade and put it aside. And we spend hours and hours to give feedback, right? So one of the things about ungrading is that when I ask students to send their grades with justifications because they read their feedback from me, from the TA, and then they have to send me an email saying that, okay, this is what I think that I deserve based on the feedback that I get. 
that kind of a dynamic changes the way that they actually start doing their assignments because they know that they have to submit a justification uh, for what kind of a work, the quality of the work. Uh, so I can definitely understand where you're coming from, Curtis, because some people is like, well, what happens if they don't learn the content? I would push back saying that this actually changes their relationship with the content because they are more intentional and mindful of the process in addition to the content of the material. I love that. I think I think that really distinguishes well the ways in which you're changing the relationship of the student to their own work and to the interaction with you. I think that's really terrific process. I'm also wondering though, you know, I remember when I started teaching, I was sort of against rubrics. I felt like they boxed you in too much. And then, you know, the more I started teaching, especially like for first and second year students, um, I started to use like analytic rubrics that, that really help students to understand like, what are the criteria for this assignment? And then what are the levels of achievement? Like, you know, what is the difference between a B and an A and a C? Because often students will come out of high school and they've gotten a lot of A's and they don't have a sense of like, you know, what these grades mean at the university level. So I'm wondering with that in mind, as you are walking students through the process of assessing themselves, do you provide guidelines for them so that they can sort of, like, how do they know how to articulate whether something is an A or a B or a C or something like that? I use Brooks grading system, though, again, as uh, Chelsea mentioned, that you're aware of the fact that it is ableist. It's, it's colonialist, it's modernist, right? It is heteropatriarchal, like it is about power systems. It is white, right? Um, and idealistically, I would not like to put a grade on them, but this is the system currently. Hopefully things will change, but I give the Brooks grading system and I ask them, where do they see they're at? And to be honest, they are so good at it. Like you rarely see a student who would just say, no, like a C students will never claim that they are A. It's just like they are very honest and they take this very seriously. Like, of course, I'm generalizing and I don't have kind of a data because I haven't done any kind of like research on it. But um, it builds a relationship between the faculty and the student in a very different way. These emails that you get back and forth, it is definitely time consuming. So I am much aware of the fact that while as a privileged tenured faculty, I can spend hours and hours. I spend so much time emailing back and forth because when they send you the justification via email, you negotiate with them sometimes, right? If uh, you have seen Jesse's work as well, Jesse will also point out that marginalized students have the tendency to undergrade themselves. And privileged students have the tendency to overgrade themselves. So I think sometimes you, with these emails back and forth with the justification, you spend so much time understanding where students are at. So I think in addition to ungrading as a practice in the class, I also see this as a relationship building between a faculty and a student because you wouldn't be able to have these interactions. And in these justifications, you're not asking anything personal. It is a reflexive exercise for them to understand the process of their learning. Someone might question, but at the end, do you know what they're learning? Like, are they learning the 10 and 15 things? Maybe at the end of the term for certain classes, they learn 15 things, but they might forget in two months out of 15, maybe 12 of them. But I think what students have told me is just like they really understood who they were as a students. Yeah. 
So their relationship with the material and the courts have shifted drastically um, this year. It's such a good point. A multiple choice test. They haven't necessarily learned the 15 things. That they've, they've learned it enough to write for two hours, but it doesn't necessarily mean they've carried something forward. That's so true. And I don't assess my students based on quantitative methods. So I think that is probably another thing we need to clarify if you're doing quantitative assessments then if a student gets 80, they get 80. This year, especially during the pandemic, I designed my assignments more on the creative side. So I didn't have a like, oh, like this is the ultimate answer that I'm looking for. So I think that also was to a certain extent um, helpful for me to practice ungrading uh, a little bit uh, on the solid ground rather than just kind of felt like lost in the way. I want to talk a little bit about assessment during a pandemic and during sort of this online pedagogy time in our lives. I did try to dabble in ungrading last year because I learned from a workshop from Jesse Stommel that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can try a few small things. And so one strategy I tried was to ask students to do two participation self-evaluation marks. And one was in the middle of the term and one was at the end. You know, what was your participation this term? What are your participation goals for the rest of the term? And part of the reason for, for this was because I was really trying to espouse those things you just mentioned, the, the, the trust, the caring, the gentleness, as we were going through a very difficult time. And I was really surprised by what I learned from students. They marked themselves all over the map. And often I heard from students who I didn't hear from anywhere else in the course, but from their responses, I could tell that they were paying attention. They were applying what they were learning in their homes or whatever else. It sort of opened up this space for relating to each other in a totally new way that didn't have to be in person and didn't have to follow the logics of traditional assessment. And so I'm just wondering with everything moving online, are there particular strategies for online assessment that stood out to you in terms of ungrading? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is vulnerability, right? I think as faculty, we rarely acknowledge the fact that we are also vulnerable, right? I used to teach a course uh, with 500 students, uh, 1F90, and I would just tell them, like, I am shaking. Like, I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that this has been a difficult year for all of us. In my weekly updates to students, I made sure that I acknowledge the fact that I am absolutely amazed by their strength. I don't like the word resilience because resilience put the kind of a burden to the uh, individuals rather than the systems, but they have been incredible. They work really hard. They showed up to a certain extent. They managed, like we all managed it. For me, in addition to being vulnerable, this is an important time for us to think about the fact that we are embedded in each other's lives. Like we are a community and we have to take care of each other. In terms of being in a university, uh, one of the important spaces to do it in the classroom and to tell students, I see you, I hear you, I'm here for you, and I trust you, but you have to trust me and you have to trust your friends as well. So I think in terms of reciprocity, it's not only between me and the student, but also the students' engagement with each other. Right, that's kind of an extension of care and collectivity and community. Because for me, if I wanna 
dream of a new world uh, after this. I know it is one of the most quoted things, like if the pandemic is a portal and we want to get out of the uh, pandemic in a new world, we have to think about things differently. And I think pandemic teaching also taught us this. I felt that despite, you know, like everybody else, we were complaining, oh, you know, online teaching, it's so hard and stuff. But honestly, especially with undergrads, I think grad uh, classes is a different kind of warm that we can chat some other time. For undergrads, I really felt that I have connected with them. And I think it goes back to things that I mentioned earlier because they have a very different understanding of themselves. Like this is their medium, the online, the social media, the emails, maybe they feel, you know, when we were students, we would just like go to our professors or when I first started teaching at Rock, okay, students will come and talk to you. But sometimes I feel that it's not that easy for them. First of all, they don't have time. Like after the class, they have to go to another class. And, and this is the, I think, the kind of colonial and modernist and idealist understanding what education is, right? People have free time, they come in, they chat in your office, but that's not the case anymore. I think what pandemic teaching actually, for me, showed is that they, they actually do want to make connection. Mm. And I think for a long time, probably we failed them because we were so stuck in this kind of like an old school colonial uh, white systems of mode of systems of learning and education. And of course, I'm much aware of the fact that online education comes with accessibility. Online education comes with like accessibility to network. Like I told the second year social geography course and put a podcast from the Canada land on the problems of internet and networking in rural uh, Canada. And, you know, so many of my students were just like, this is my life because I'm actually taking my studies from rural Ontario and I have to share the internet with like five siblings and like we don't get stable internet so I cannot listen lectures. Yes, I understand that it has been a challenge for all of us but I think pandemic and online teaching also gave us the chance to really be reflexive about in quotation the old habits. And how can we introduce the new by being mindful of the limitations of the online? It's so well said. And your emphasis on trust, and I've heard Jesse say that too. He said, I think he has like a four-word teaching philosophy that's like start by trusting students. You know, I'll be honest, I actually tried this in one of my classes just around participation like Chelsea did as well. It was a revelation for me. I, I gave students the opportunity, um, you know, I sort of told them about the expectations for the course at the outset. I gave them an opportunity to reflect on those expectations at the end of the course, um, to reflect on their experience learning online, to, you know, to, to really just kind of, you know, get into a bit of a dialogue with me as part of this 10% um, this grade. And I couldn't believe how much they gave. I mean, these are first year students I was teaching and they were, I had 90 of them in a class. It was a big class. Uh, they were incredibly giving. Uh, a lot of them said, you know, it means a lot to me. They were even asking me to do this. Uh, and so I can really see that in what you're saying and the way you're, you're approaching this idea of community in undergrad. I, I love that. So, so let me ask another question related to it just really briefly. You mentioned you teach 500 students in that one to. class. I used or you to. did, yeah. I mean, if you, would you do this with a class of 500? Are there ways to do this with 500? Or is this really something that is better situated for smaller class sizes or upper level classes? What are your thoughts on that? People will tell me not to do it because in terms of time, but um, <laughs> I would say probably yes, because I have seen the benefits. 
And I think it's so important for the first year students to start thinking about uh, their learning process in the university. And I know that it's a, quite an adjustment for them from high school to the university. But again, we want to change systems. We want to think about alternatives. I think this is our moment to really push back the systems that haven't been working and the systems that have been cre creating hierarchical understanding of education. And it doesn't work. 500 students, it would be challenging. But again, for a 500 student class, I would have TAs. Like I would have the help, uh, but that means that I will spend a lot of time emailing, but generally we do it regardless. My uh, fall term class was a third year class and my winter class was a second year class. Students were showing up in my office hours and they were just like, we're just excited. And I had a bunch of students who were just like, we just wanted to come because we like reading your emails. Like they didn't have any questions. Like they really wanted to see other people who were part of the class. Uh, so I definitely see the benefits and I'm aware of the fact that there is not a model that works for everyone. Uh, I'm happy to talk about the challenges because I'm, I also don't want people to understand that this is just like the best medicine. But so far, I see the benefits uh, weighing more than the uh, challenges. You've been reminding us that ungrading isn't one simple thing. It means different things to different people, including students, including faculty, including people who are at different positions um, in their teaching careers. And it has something to do and maybe a lot to do with the community of learning that we are creating in our classrooms and what it means to do that in a relational way and in a way that's accountable to one another. But what do you say to people who might challenge this idea of ungrading, who might say, but it won't work that way in my classroom or students are gonna grade themselves too high or it just, it just doesn't work. And there might also be experiences that people have where they try on grading and it doesn't really work. So can you say a few things about some of the challenges that come with ungrading that maybe people should anticipate? One of the suggestions that I would give is to look at Twitter and hashtag ungrading because Twitter itself with the, that hashtag is fantastic as a resource. And one of the things that I heard from the colleagues uh, this year is just like, what happens if they don't do the work and they overgrade themselves? One of the things that I want to mention is that for the justifications, if the students were saying, I deserve an A, right? Some people will say that, uh, what happens if the students claim that they all did an A? How do you differentiate for students who are working really hard, but they claim that they are B versus a uh, scale difference? Um, my response to students is just if they claim that like they are 85, I ask them to show me what made their work exceptional compared to their peers and to provide an evidence for it because they were seeing each other's work or the assignment itself. So I was going back to Broke's grading criteria and asking them, okay, like if you think that you deserve the highest grade in this class, what do you think it is? And the same thing in terms of people who were undergrading themselves, right? I had probably, in, especially in my second year class, at least 10 to 12 students who undergraded themselves because I have my notes. This is the other thing about grade, ungrading is that I have, for every student, I have these detailed notes about who they are and how they're just like doing in the course, especially during the pandemic. And I also, in terms of the ungrading, I gave them the option to see their growth during a pandemic, I think everybody should get an A. Like the fact that they woke up every day and did the work is fantastic. But I'm like, if you claim that you have done the work, 
that is exceptional compared to your peers, prove it. Um, and some of them, to be fair, they came back and they said, this is what I have done. These are the additional stuff that I have put. Um, and some students said, oh, you're right. Like, she's like, I understand that. Like, so I think they were quite fair in terms of how they understood the process. And some students were confused, like in terms of like what kind of uh, outline that I'm giving them. Like, I was just like, just tell me how you deserve it. Like this was also being in geography and teaching social exclusion and place and belonging. Like, tell me the narration, tell me the story. And I think for me, rather than that numerical grade that we associate with success is problematic. Having said that, it is challenging because sometimes students also undergrade themselves uh, because they feel that they haven't done the work enough. But because you build a relationship from the first day to the last day of the class, you have a good sense how they write, how they think. And I also emphasize, okay, in what ways throughout the course, your relationship with the material and this course has changed. Did you put more time into it? Did you put more effort to it knowing that? And they were just like, yeah, I actually did because I knew that I was going to send this justification to you. Then I paid more attention to my assignment. For me as an instructor and someone who really cares about like feminist and anti-oppressive pedagogies, that is a win more than a, like a grade that's associated with learning. I think that's what I would say. What a wonderful way to end because, you know, you're, you're getting students to do this kind of crucial metacognitive work where they're, where they understand, like, you know, now grades are tied to real meaning. They, they, by getting students to go through this process of ungrading, you know, sort of ironically, their grades become more meaningful. Uh, and it's because you've asked them to do that work that, you know, makes them accountable, um, but also uh, has them reflect on what their learning has meant in your course. I think it's just wonderful. Abru, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to, to do this with us today. I've learned a ton and I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And also a big thank you to the people behind the scenes who produced this episode with us, production support specialist Chloe Hazard and instructional technologist Sally Goldberg-Powell. Uh, we got to thank the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching for funding our podcast. And we also want to thank Julia Forsyth at Brock University Center for Pedagogical Innovation for supporting this podcast. Julia always needs an extra shout out. I would like <laughs> to give a shout out to Julia as well. She's the bestest. There yes, let's go. shout out to Julia. Shout Hi, out Julia. To Julia. Thanks, Julia. <laughs> Thanks, everybody.